0: Hey guys, before we get started, I'm sharing a quick promo for a podcast you should check out. Co-host of the popular True Crime Obsessed podcast, Patrick Hines, has a new podcast called Obsessed With Disappeared. Here's a promo for Obsessed With Disappeared. Make sure you subscribe while you're listening.
1: Hey, murderish podcast listeners. This is Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed podcast. If you're looking for a new podcast to binge, let me tell you about my new show, Obsessed with Disappeared. It's a true crime comedy podcast hosted by me and my best friend of 20 years, Broadway diva Ellen Marsh. In each episode, we tell the mysterious story of a missing person by recapping the episode of the ID show Disappeared that covered their case. The podcast is light and funny, but the comedy never comes at the expense of the missing person or the crime. Obsessed with Disappeared is an easy listen. It's hilarious and informative storytelling from two best friends who truly love each other and will do just about anything to make the other one laugh. So if you're fascinated by cases of missing people and you're serious about true crime, but you also love to laugh, you'll love Obsessed with Disappeared. Find Obsessed with Disappeared wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of The Murderish Podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener
0: discretion is advised. On August 25th of 2013, a body was discovered in a field. Answers would be revealed in time and a suspect emerged. Investigators worked to figure out why this person wanted the victim dead. As it turned out, the killer may have been seen on surveillance footage, leaving the scene of the crime. But was the person seen on the video footage really the killer? This would be a source of debate in the trial that took place years after the murder. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I examine a case that broke stereotypes and had many people in disbelief after a suspect was arrested and charged. takes us to Bakersfield, California, a mid-sized city roughly 110 miles north of Los Angeles. While the city was once full of swamplands, Bakersfield is now considered a major hub for agriculture and energy production. Located in Kern County, the oil capital of California, Bakersfield has consistently been considered one of the least educated cities in America. As of 2012, only 77% of adult residents had a high school diploma. In 2013, Sunny Bakersfield was where the Chance family called home. Leslie Chance, a wife and mother of three daughters, had a long, respectable career in education. Having been with the Greenfield Union School District since 1977, Leslie got her start as a teacher at McKee Middle School. She held that position for nearly seven years before becoming an academic coach at Olivier Middle School, where she worked for two years. Leslie had lofty aspirations and soon moved up to the role of assistant principal. After holding that position for four years, she finally landed the title of principal at Fairview Elementary. The assistant director of personnel, Ken Chichester, described Leslie as hardworking, quiet, well, respected and very knowledgeable. She was genuinely very well liked by her colleagues and the student body of over 500 children. In addition to having her dream job, she also had a rich home life. Leslie's daughter, Jessica, was the product of her first marriage to Alan Bowman. Leslie and Alan had known one another since middle school, but their history wasn't enough to preserve the relationship. While Leslie was pregnant with Jessica, she discovered that Alan was having an affair. She responded by filing for divorce. Four years later, Leslie met Todd Chance. Todd Eric Chance was born on March 10th of 1968 to parents Travis and Diana Chance. He and his brother Scott grew up in Shafter, California, approximately 20 miles northwest of Bakersfield. While Leslie was still emotionally scarred from her failed marriage, she was instantly impressed by Todd's willingness to raise Jessica as his own daughter. The pair got married two years later. Todd and Leslie went on to have two daughters together, Sarah and Samantha Chance. The three girls were inseparable. Most people casually acquainted with the family never suspected that Jessica was their half-sister. In 2013, Todd and Leslie had been married for 17 years. According to their daughters, the marriage was a happy one. Their parents rarely argued, and when they did, it was usually over money or something mundane. Jessica recalled her parents frequently going out on date nights. They also loved to take the family on road trips. Not long before tragedy struck the Chance family, they had traveled to Morro Bay, San Francisco, and Las Vegas spending quality time together. Aside from having a strong affinity for travel, Todd was a car and motorcycle enthusiast. He was often spotted cruising around town in his black 2011 Ford Mustang. Above all else, Todd always put his children first. Though he worked long hours as a truck driver for nearly 20 years, he enjoyed spending his free time playing video games with the girls. On the evening of August 24, 2013, Todd went for a drive in his Mustang. He returned home with tacos, which he ate while Leslie cleaned up the kitchen. He played video games for a while before he and Leslie went to bed. The following day, the Chance family would receive news that would forever change all of their lives. Are you looking for fresh dinners that taste great, are healthy and take little effort? Sunbasket sends delicious, fresh and ready meals to your doorstep, and they take minutes to heat up. If you're like me, you try to avoid meats with antibiotics, steroids, and hormones in them. Good news, Sunbasket's meals don't have any of that. Plus, all of the produce in their fresh and ready meals is organic. Give yourself a break and let Sunbasket's chefs handle dinner. Listen, you could be eating cauliflower macaroni and cheese and more in as little as 6 minutes with no messy kitchen to clean up. The other night, I devoured southwestern turkey and sweet potato skillet and then gave myself a pedicure with the extra time I saved not having to cook dinner. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com/murderish and enter promo code MURDERISH at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash MURDERISH and enter promo code MURDERISH at checkout for $35 off your order. sunbasket.com slash MURDERISH and enter promo code MURDERISH. If you're one of the millions of people who don't get enough sleep, I've got a recommendation for you. Psalm Sleep is a berry-flavored sleep drink in a small can. My husband drinks one can about 30 minutes before bed, and it helps him fall asleep fast and stay asleep. The next morning, he doesn't have the brain fogginess he used to get with other sleep aids. He also loves that Psalm Sleep is drug free and non habit forming. We are busy raising children, running our businesses, and just doing life every day. Psalm Sleep has been such a helpful tool for my husband's alertness and productivity level each day. Not to mention better sleep builds a better immune system to help avoid getting sick. Curious to try a sleep drink for the first time ever? Som Sleep is giving away free samples. All you have to do is sign up at getsom.com/pages/podcast. That's g e t s o m.com/pages/podcast. In the early morning hours of August 25, 2013, the farmhand of an almond orchard came upon a body. Authorities were called to the scene and soon they were able to put a name to the victim. It was Todd Chance, and he'd been shot multiple times. His body rested at the edge of a field near Enos Lane and Noriega Road, approximately 15 miles from the Chance family home. According to Leslie, On the morning of Sunday, August 25th, Todd left to attend a gun show. A few short hours after leaving his home, he was found brutally murdered. Something about the scene struck Marco Vieira, the man who'd found the body, as particularly odd. When he first reported for work between 6 and 6.30 a.m., the body was not there. He left to run some errands shortly after arriving, And returned to the orchard between 9 and 920 a.m. It was around that time when he spotted the body. Either the crime had been committed on the property or someone had placed the body there sometime after 6:30 a.m. Kern County Fire Captain Sean Pattison and his team were first responders on the scene. One of the responding officers lifted Todd's shirt to find him bleeding and noted that he was not breathing. At 9.27 a.m., sheriff's deputies were dispatched to the orchard. Todd was pronounced dead at the scene. A cell phone lay 30 feet from his body, which was later identified as belonging to Todd. Todd's cherished Mustang was located that same day about 20 miles from the location of his body. It had been abandoned in a southwest neighborhood. Several witnesses informed authorities that they had seen a woman park the car and walk away. She never reappeared. From the onset of the investigation, detectives zeroed in on Leslie Chance. They emerged with plausible motives. Either Leslie needed money or she had spiraled into a jealous rage. Within days of Todd's body being found, Leslie was arrested under suspicion of murdering her husband. The question looming in everybody's mind was why. Why would a successful woman with a great family life and an outwardly happy marriage throw it all away? Some could not imagine that she could be guilty of the crime and believed law enforcement had focused on the wrong person. Jessica, Samantha, and Sarah could not have been more shocked and devastated at the news that their father had been murdered. As the case received more publicity, Jessica released a statement to the press. According to a September 2013 article in the New York Daily News by Nancy Dillon, Jessica said, We love our mom and dad and we can't even begin to comprehend what is happening to our family right now. This is a tragedy for everyone involved. As we are grieving for the loss of our dad, we are also supporting our mother in this time of uncertainty. When Todd's funeral service was held on August 28th, Leslie was notably absent. Her attorney at the time, Kyle J. Humphrey, had advised her to skip it. He reasoned that emotions were running high and he didn't want a family member of Todd's to lash out at his client. Although Leslie had purchased burial plots close to her mother for both her and Todd, his family opted to bury him elsewhere in his hometown. Two days after the funeral, Leslie went to pick up Todd's Mustang from a police impound lot. She was never able to leave with the car, as she was arrested when she arrived. The sheriff's office called administrators of the Greenfield Unified School District To inform them of Leslie's arrest. Under law, she was placed on paid administrative leave. The following day, Assistant Superintendent of Personnel Kenneth Chichester met with staff at Fairview Elementary to break the staggering news. He would later tell investigators Leslie's colleagues were completely shocked, with many believing there had been a serious mistake or this must have been a case of mistaken identity several students rallied together in support of their principal. They made banners and signs voicing their support with messages like, We love you, Mrs. Chance. Some parents of Fairview students were not quite sure of Leslie's innocence. A handful of parents reacted by pulling their children out of school. In a September article in the Bakersfield Californian, the parent of an 8-year-old girl was quoted as saying, The woman must have been sick to do something like that. Another parent explained she removed her son from school because she feared something bad might happen there once the community heard an administrator was also a suspected murderer. Despite this, Leslie also had her advocates. One parent, Lisa Ramos, had served on the PTA alongside Leslie before she was principal. She told journalists that Leslie didn't seem capable of such a heinous act. In an interview with the Bakersfield Californian, Ramos shared, She's an amazing person. I don't know why so many people are throwing stones at her so soon. Leslie had brought her own family to school events and even served as a character reference for Ramos in a vicious custody battle. The online comments she encountered about Leslie upset her. Ramos said people are calling her disgusting and saying that she should be hanged but nobody knows what happened and if she is proven guilty, may God be with her but if she's not, there's no reason to blame her, according to the Bakersfield Californian article. Todd's murder case was eventually turned over to the supervising deputy district attorney Andrea Kohler, who after reviewing it, decided more evidence was needed in order to secure a conviction. With that, Leslie Chance was released from police custody on September 2nd of 2013. Kohler instructed Kern County detectives to strengthen their case before it could go to trial. A three-year investigation into Todd's murder ensued, with the FBI being pulled in to assist. The initial investigation began with Todd's 2011 Mustang. Upon discovering the abandoned vehicle, Kern County detectives closely examined the interior to see if they could pull evidence. According to a follow-up document after a request for a warrant, samples obtained from the car included dirt, a front seat floor mat, and a possible blood sample. Objects recovered from inside the vehicle included a car key, two notes, and a pink towel under the driver's seat. Oddly, the contents of the notes were never documented. Underneath a floor mat, detectives found a 38 caliber revolver, which contained two spent shell casings. Todd had suffered two gunshot wounds. Right away, this was presumed to be the murder weapon. After these discoveries, Leslie was promptly brought in for questioning. At the sheriff's office, she was fingerprinted and swabbed for DNA. In addition, investigators obtained search warrants for her home as well as the school where she worked. When asked about her whereabouts the morning Todd was found dead, Leslie said she never left the house. In her statement, She indicated that August 25th was a leisurely morning spent doing laundry, watching TV, and working on her computer to develop a safety plan for her school. Detectives noted several inconsistencies in Leslie's statement, some of which revolved around video surveillance which they had secured. Detectives interviewed Ken Chichester, the superintendent of personnel who'd broken the news to Leslie's colleagues. Chichester said that he had called Leslie the day after Todd's body was found. In his opinion, on that call she was very quiet and seemed to be in a daze. The way she sounded struck him as unusual, especially given her outgoing personality. Of course, this could have been as a result of the tragic news she had received about her husband's murder. Regardless, Leslie's demeanor on the call was still noted as being odd. There also seemed to be a shift in Leslie's attitude toward firearms in the weeks leading up to the crime. During all of the years she was married to Todd, Leslie did not share the enthusiasm her extended family and husband had for guns. On one of Todd's birthdays, his mother had gifted him a gun. At his party, the three chance daughters were posing with the gun and taking photos, Leslie was furious about this. It angered her so much that she left the birthday party. Weeks before Todd's death, however, Leslie had taken a sudden interest in guns and even attended shooting practice. In addition, investigators learned that Todd had four different life insurance policies, which amounted to a total of $500,000. Based on eyewitness accounts, a proposed timeline, physical and circumstantial evidence, Leslie was again the sole suspect. Much like their initial theory, investigators believed that Leslie may have needed money or that she had spiraled into a jealous rage. Three years after she was released from custody at 5.30 p.m., On December 1st of 2016, Leslie was arrested a second time near a traffic stop. This time, detectives believed they had enough incriminating evidence stacked against her to get a conviction. That evening, she was booked at the Kern County Jail and charged with first-degree murder. She would go on trial for her husband's murder three years later. Hey guys, I announced recently that I will be narrating Season 2 of Scene of the Crime podcast, which is slated to drop this fall. What you'll hear next is a teaser trailer for the show. Please do me a favor and subscribe to Scene of the Crime while you're listening. There's another podcast with the same name, Long Story, so subscribe to the one that has yellow crime scene tape in the logo. Alright, here's the trailer for Scene of the Crime Season 2. The young couple sneaks off on a romantic getaway to another state. Their liaison is illicit, a clandestine weekend getaway from his wife and her child. On a whim, they stop at a hotel which, unbeknownst to them, is hosting a mortician's convention. They are given the last available room after a late cancellation. After heading to their room, they are never seen alive again. In a busy hotel, with people coming and going at all hours, the couple is murdered in their bed in a bloody and brutal scene. The killer left behind some sinister clues before he or she vanished into the night, and no one saw or heard a thing. The gory tableau the unsuspecting hotel maid encountered the next day as she entered room 260 was just the beginning. This is a story so twisted, so complex, so unpredictable, that even after 40 years of investigation by multiple law enforcement agencies, the killer remains at large. In season two of Scene of the Crime, we will examine this decades-old mystery. We have been given unprecedented access to police files and records, family and friends of the victims, and the insight of members of law enforcement who worked for years to solve this horrific murder. Season two will examine the victims, multiple suspects, and other possibly related crimes, and potentially not one, but two serial killers. We will feature interviews with many of those involved in this tragic case and we will unpack all angles of one of the most comprehensive investigations in the history of this Midwest state. Listen to Season 2 of Scene of the Crime, coming to your favorite podcast app this fall. Six years after Todd Chance's murder, his widow went on trial at the Kern County Superior Courthouse. On December 9th of 2019, Leslie Chance's four and a half week trial began. Assistant District Attorney Andrea Kohler alleged the murder of Todd Chance was entirely premeditated. Using video surveillance to support the prosecution's theory, she claimed Leslie had mapped out her return journey home in the weeks leading up to the crime. The DA claimed that after shooting her husband and dumping his car, Leslie traveled on foot to a nearby Starbucks to change clothes, then she weaved her way between stores in the same shopping center before calling a cab to take her home. Security footage from the Starbucks, Lowe's, Walmart, and Sam's Club that Leslie supposedly passed by were presented into evidence. In the videos, a woman who was wearing dark sunglasses and clothing, a dark hat, and a red backpack can be seen, but her identity was a matter of debate. A canister of disinfectant wipes could be viewed, peeking out of the woman’s oversized purse in some of the footage. The defense worked hard to cast suspicion on the surveillance footage evidence. Defense attorney Tony V. Lidget argued, "The subject of the videos could not be clearly viewed, and the quality was grainy. Additionally, Lidgett pointed out timestamps on the footage did not match the prosecution's timeline. Those closest to Leslie would be called upon to confirm or deny the identity of the woman seen on camera. Many times during trial, there was mention of the manner in which Leslie walked. People close to her said that she had a very specific way of walking that made her stand out. According to testimony from Deputy Steve Alvidrez, who worked as a school police officer at Fairview, Leslie's walk was unique. He said she had a very specific way she would walk and her hips would shift in a certain way, and it was kind of like a waddle. Relatives and friends were divided when it came to determining if it was Leslie in those videos. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Both Leslie's mother-in-law, Diana, and Todd's cousin, William, strongly believed the woman in the footage was Leslie. Todd and Leslie's three daughters, however, all testified they did not recognize the woman captured on video as being their mother. Other people who had seen the footage said they couldn't be sure it was her. There was hardly a consensus on the woman's identity. The prosecution also leaned on the testimony of a witness named Martha Medina. She lived in the neighborhood where Todd's Mustang had been abandoned. Medina and her husband had been sitting in their front yard drinking coffee when a woman resembling Leslie Chance pulled up in a Mustang, parked it, and walked away. She never returned for the vehicle, which struck Medina as odd. In addition to the superintendent of personnel thinking that Leslie was off after her husband's death, an investigator also described her reaction as unusual. Melissa Costamagana had been tasked with notifying Todd's next of kin after examining the crime scene. According to Costa Magana, upon hearing the news of her husband's death, Leslie did not seem too upset and kept mumbling incoherently that she knew something was wrong. While this behavior was atypical, it didn't exactly prove Leslie was a killer. Numerous errors made by law enforcement were called out during trial. Senior Deputy Coven Brewer, one of the lead detectives, had failed to log into evidence two interviews he conducted back in 2013, when the case originally came into their hands. These undocumented interviews were also not disclosed to attorneys until the trial was already underway. It is speculated that perhaps these interviews were purposely ignored because they did not exactly align with law enforcement's narrative of the case. Both interviewees told detectives that it was not Leslie in the surveillance videos. One of the interviewees was Leslie's brother, Brian. Lori Aragon, former assistant superintendent of the Greenfield Unified School District, told Brewer that she couldn't say for certain if Leslie was the mystery woman on camera. Additionally, Aragon claimed that investigators tried to feed her information, to push her toward identifying Leslie in the video. It also came to light that the other lead detective, Sergeant Kevin Kimmel, had secretly recorded Leslie as she was informed of Todd's death. Again, this recording was never documented or logged into evidence. News also broke that DNA inside Todd's Mustang was not tested until two weeks prior to trial. The missteps did not end there. Recordings of the 911 calls made by field workers and residents of the neighborhood where Todd's car was dumped had somehow been destroyed. Leslie's attorney, Tony Lidget, told the press that normally unlogged evidence would have been grounds for prosecutorial misconduct, and often this would be enough for the judge to declare a mistrial. Presiding Judge Charles R. Bremer, however, continued with court proceedings as planned. Perhaps the most influential piece of the puzzle emerged when a woman named Carrie Williams was called to the stand. Williams was Todd's ex-fiancée. Their engagement had been broken off in the mid-1990s. She referred to Todd as her first love, and their romance had been secretly rekindled in 2012 about a year before Todd's death. According to Williams' testimony, after becoming Facebook friends, Todd messaged her and asked if they could be more than Facebook friends. Soon after, they began exchanging text messages on a regular basis. Williams also admitted that she and Todd had flirted over text. At one point, the messages turned sexual, with Todd asking her for a nice pic and Williams responding with several nude photos. Williams told the court, however, that she never intended to pursue a full-blown affair with Todd. Electronic communication was the extent of their relationship, according to her testimony. When questioned by prosecutors about her whereabouts on the days leading up to the crime, Williams said she had been away with her daughter. They traveled to San Clemente, California, located about 170 miles south of Bakersfield. Photos of them on the beach and at the San Clemente Mission Parish confirmed her alibi. The defense, however, argued that a parking ticket Williams received on August 25th, the day Todd's body was discovered, seemed suspicious. There had been plenty of free parking around the mission, so why would Williams park somewhere else and risk a ticket? Maybe, the defense surmised, she knew she would need proof to solidify her alibi. In Lidgett's opinion, parking tickets and photos did not clear Williams of suspicion. The drive between San Clemente and Bakersfield was only between two and three hours, which would have given her enough time for a swift getaway after killing her former flame. Aside from an ex who had recently come back into the picture, Leslie was still the most likely suspect, according to prosecutors. They argued Leslie had more to gain over Todd's death than she did if he was alive. If she and Todd divorced, Todd could get half of everything, including her salary, retirement fund, savings, and investments. With Todd dead, Leslie stood to keep all of her assets and collect on her husband's lofty life insurance policies. One thing about the crime scene struck senior deputy Mitch Adams as particularly odd. He had been tasked with photographing shoe prints for law enforcement and other emergency teams. Detectives had theorized that Leslie shot Todd in his car and later dumped the body. If this was the case, Why hadn't there been a blood trail or drag marks near his body? An autopsy in 2013, performed by forensic pathologist Robert Whitmore, revealed that it had taken less than 10 minutes for Todd to die. He had been shot twice, and it was evident that Todd's hands had been raised in a defensive position before he was shot. The first bullet had entered his right hand, and penetrated the right side of his chest, damaging multiple organs. A second bullet went directly into his chest in a downward trajectory and pierced his liver. The autopsy showed that both shots were fired in close range of the victim. As documented by Eyewitness News in Bakersfield, Dr. Whitmore testified, the massive hemorrhage and all of the bullet holes in the major organs would result in death in a matter of minutes. Even if Todd had only been shot once, it would have proven fatal. In a move that likely caught some by surprise, Leslie Chance took the witness stand. Evidence presented during trial was mounting against her, even if it was predominantly circumstantial. The prosecution alleged that Leslie was largely motivated to kill her husband out of jealousy over the racy text messages he exchanged with his ex-girlfriend. Todd straying from their marriage would mark the second time Leslie was betrayed by a husband, and it wasn't a stretch to imagine she felt slighted by this. Leslie, however, claimed to have no knowledge of her husband's extramarital flirtation. Assistant DA Andrea Kohler also highlighted a family trip that happened weeks prior to the crime. While in Las Vegas, the Chance family had visited an interactive exhibit at the MGM Hotel and Casino. Prosecutors speculated that the exhibit, called CSI The Experience, allowed Leslie to gather information that would help her commit murder and get away with it. According to prosecutor Art Norris, Every method used to wipe the crime scene of evidence had been showcased in the CSI exhibit. The car had been wiped down with bleach to clear it of fingerprints and eliminate DNA. In addition, there was surveillance footage that showed a woman carrying what appeared to be disinfectant wipes inside of her purse. Evidence was discovered that showed Leslie had changed her shoes to cover up shoe prints that could have identified her as being at the crime scene. Prosecutor Norris cited testimony given by forensic experts about the condition of Todd's abandoned vehicle. Todd had cared for his car meticulously, which should have resulted in fingerprints scattered around the interior. Because of this, crime scene analysts found it suspicious how little DNA and fingerprints could be pulled from the Mustang. In closing arguments, Norris referenced mounting resentment Leslie must have felt over Todd showering another woman with attention. He told jurors, she was the primary breadwinner, and she worked very hard to provide for her family. Despite that, Todd was unfaithful. The one person on this planet who had a motive to shoot Todd was Leslie Chance. The defense countered this by pointing out that the prosecution's case rested solely on a number of assumptions. There was the implication Leslie had taken up shooting to prepare for the murder, when it was entirely possible she just wanted to spend more time with her family by joining them in shooting practice. The notion that she visited the CSI exhibit to gather information on how to get away with murder may have been a stretch. It's possible that Leslie simply had an interest in true crime, like so many other women. According to a January 2020, 23 ABC News Bakersfield article by Veronica Morley, defense attorney Tony Lidgett stated in closing remarks, they assumed so many things, and they were shown to be wrong on so many occasions. This is an innocent person. She did not kill her husband. After a week of deliberations and one juror being replaced, a verdict was reached. Leslie Janae Chance was found guilty of premeditated first-degree murder. Kern County District Attorney Cynthia Zimmer responded to the verdict by telling ABC 23 News Leslie Chance's meticulous premeditation in the killing of her husband did not prevent our law enforcement community from exposing the truth of Todd Chance's murder. Today's verdict is a reminder that we will continue to hold anyone who takes the life of another accountable for their crimes. Her sentencing was initially scheduled for March 2nd of 2020, but it was delayed because Leslie suffered a bout of pneumonia. Due to this and safety precautions stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic, her sentencing was delayed until August 26th. This episode was recorded on August 25th, so it's possible her sentence has been announced since then. As of today's date, Leslie's attorney is exploring various appeals, including a motion for a new trial. Although Todd Chance has been gone for nearly seven years, the sense of loss felt by his loved ones remains palpable. The recent trial undoubtedly ripped open old wounds. As Todd's daughters and parents had to hear painful testimony entailing the extent of his injuries. The accusations of infidelity were undoubtedly difficult to hear, and the fact that he likely knew what was happening to him right before he died is haunting. In his life, Todd was cheerful and friendly. He was well liked by neighbors and family friends. Todd is survived by his parents, brother, three daughters, and three grandchildren. In Todd's obituary found on Legacy.com, Todd's parents, Travis and Diana Chance, wrote, Todd, we are missing you every moment since you went away. Our thoughts and prayers are that we all will be together in the hereafter. You were one of the two most special people that we created. Your life was too short and we wanted many more years with you. We hope that you are resting in peace with your grandparents. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I hope you were intrigued after listening to the teaser trailer for Scene of the Crime Season 2. Don't forget to subscribe. Check out Murderish.com if you'd like to know more about the podcast or me. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon. And have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. You'll also get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. I want to thank Marcy B, Jessica L, Judith S, Stacy C, and Stephanie F for becoming Patreon supporters. Be cool like Marcy, Stacy, Jessica, Judith, and Stephanie, and go to murderish.com to sign up for Patreon perks. While there, you'll also find a link to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, mugs, face masks, and more. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group yet, what are you waiting for? We have so much fun in there. Just search Murderish on Facebook and answer a couple of questions to join the group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. I've been doing a lot of fun Q&As on Instagram stories so follow me there if you want to participate. Please remember to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. You can also support Murderish by writing a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Stick around after the closing music if you'd like to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include an article by Howard Brower dated September 25th of 2013 at people.com. An article by James Berger dated August 26th of 2013 in the Bakersfield, Californian at bakersfield.com. An article by Nancy Dillon dated September 5th, 2013 in the New York Daily News at nydailynews.com. An article by Emily Irwin in Bakersfield Now, dated December 18, 2019, found on bakersfieldnow.com. An article dated January 14th of 2020, by Emily Irwin at Bakersfield Now on bakersfieldnow.com. An article by Matt Hamilton, dated December 4th, 2016, in the Los Angeles Times. An article dated September 1st, 2013, by Jason Katowski, in the Bakersfield, Californian. An article by Veronica Morley dated December 9, 2013 in 23 ABC News Bakersfield at www.turn223.com. An article by Veronica Morley at 23 ABC News Bakersfield dated January 22nd, 2020, found at turn 23com Another article by Veronica Morley dated December 18th, 2019 for 23 ABC News Bakersfield at TurnTo23.com. Another article by Veronica Morley at 23 ABC News Bakersfield at TurnTo23.com dated December 20th, 2019. An article by Stacey Shepard for the Bakersfield Californian dated January 21st, 2020 at Bakersfield.com. A Stacy Shepherd article for the Bakersfield Californian dated December 10th of 2019 at bakersfield.com. An article by Stephanie Slifer for CBS News dated September 4th, 2013 at cbsnews.com. A Legacy article dated 2013 at legacy.com. Seeking the truth never gets old.